0: My guest today on Mission Impact is Lauren Brownstein. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. Lauren and I talk about why it's so important for those in the nonprofit sector to take care of themselves while they are working towards their mission the concept of passion exploitation, and the importance of professional boundaries. Well, welcome Lauren, welcome to Mission Impact. Thank
1: you, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to have this conversation.
0: So I always start my uh, conversations with a question around what drew you to the work that you do? What would you uh, describe as your why or what motivates you?
1: (laughs) That's such a big question. And I'm laughing in part because uh, let's see, I started my career, started working, I guess, in 1992. And to be honest, I sort of fell into nonprofit work. I mean, it was like, there's a recession, and there's this job opportunity and fundraising. And I had a background in that work. But I always had been and continue to be mission driven in both my personal life and my professional life. I remember when I was in college, I had to do a project about career choices, and I did something about PR. You know what it's like to be a PR professional, but mine was PR for a nonprofit. You know, I I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine not working um, in the nonprofit sector. I think what's kept me in the sector um, is this notion of having a work life and a personal life that align along the same values. Um, And I certainly don't think that's exclusive to people who work in the nonprofit sector, but I think um, for some folks that, you know, we live in the DC area, there's tons of lawyers, for example. And I think for um, some of my friends who are lawyers, their, um, their orientation is more like, well, this is what I do to take care of my family so that I can give back to my community, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's great if that's the way you know that works for you for me I don't want to feel such I don't want to feel like my life is in these two different buckets like this is what I do during the day just to support myself so that I can do the things I want to do I like having it more blended and and um, yeah more of a partnership between all those areas of my life and there are pros and cons look you know money wise and everything else but I, I would say that's kind of what drives me does that make any sense
0: Totally makes sense. And and, um, I I think we've been living parallel lives because I started about the same time. And uh, my very first job out of college, I was working for um, a small company that helped people get on talk shows. And it was um, so kind of, you know, in the realm of PR and was working with lots of publicists for self-help books from New York. Um, But that that experience, because uh, it was a for-profit business of you know doing PR for all comers, um, when I moved back to the Washington area, uh, sparked me to say, if I'm doing this, who do I want to do it for? And so that's what prompted me to move into this sector. And yeah, I I, I appreciate that alignment. And I also, um, as I'm coming to the other end of my career, thinking about you know a, a lot of people. Uh, may segue into the sector at the end of their career, right. having having done that, you know, job that that supports their family or whatnot, and want to give back later. Um, but I appreciate those of us who've been in the trenches all along. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly.
1: And sometimes I meet people, you know, God bless, best of intentions, will say, "Well, I'm retiring, and now." I'm going to be a grant writing consultant. You know, having never written a grant in their life, so I think that the sector, on some level, is still uh, needs to work on helping people understand that these are professions and that there are levels of expertise, just like you know, in any other profession.
0: Yeah, I I, I would invite those folks who are thinking about that transition to come in with a little humility that they might have a little bit to learn. <laughs> Um, that it isn't just about applying everything that they knew from their corporate or or legal or whatnot profession. So, yeah. Right,
1: or realizing that even if you've been very involved in a nonprofit as a volunteer or a board member, you don't really know the dirty, dirty of the inside probably unless you've actually been on the staff side of things. It's not going to be the same. Being a lay leader and being a staff person are not going to be the same. There's going to be things that are better, but there are going to be things that are different.
0: Definitely, lots of things that are going to be different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you you know you you've been in the in the realm of of fundraising for a long time and in the sector, um, and but you recently wrote a book. Uh, be well, do good, self care and renewal for nonprofit professionals and other do gooders. And um, since my tagline for this podcast is that it's a podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I saw it, I, I was like, Oh, my goodness, I need to talk to Lauren. So, so what inspired you to write the book?
1: Well, um, and remind me to talk about passion exploitation, because oh, your, yeah, please. your tagline reminds me of that. But in terms of the inspiration for the book, I mean, to be honest, I never really, although I write a ton for my consulting work, it's, you know, one of the main things I do. I never really thought I had a book in me. I never, it, for plenty of people, that's, a, you know, a dream and something they work on for years. It, it wasn't really on my radar. It wasn't, something I had written, you know, written off, pun intended, but it wasn't really on my radar. Um, As the conversations around burnout were becoming even more accelerated during the pandemic, I turned more of my attention to that. And on a personal level, I've been a student, far from a master, but a student of various wellness practices, and approaches for decades, whether that's meditation, yoga, my therapy is crafting, <laughs> like crocheting, and, and turning everything in my home into an art project, et cetera, et cetera. So it, I I had realized that I had been writing about this for years in you know my blog and in other settings and talking about it, and I had a collection of thoughts and tactics and micro-steps that I had assembled over the years and as a consultant, maybe you can relate to this too. I've both been a full-time staff person at nonprofits and been a consultant for 19 years. What makes that, it provides a unique perspective because I've seen how so many different nonprofits treat their staff, approach their work, take care of themselves, take care of others. so to make a long and rambling story short, I realized that I had the makings of a book that had evolved naturally and organically. So then I sat down to create something that looked and felt like me and and uh, reflected my unique perspective. Um, I used a bunch of things I'd written over the years, but also added some additional content, particularly in the area of um there's a section of the book called whose job is it anyway where i talk about how um staying well um and strong and resilient as a nonprofit professional should not just be on the shoulders of the individual professionals but nonprofits themselves the leadership of these organizations have a responsibility to create a culture that honors wellness so i added some new content about that i also added some worksheets and checklists and things like that. I do a lot of training as well in my consulting practice. And my trainings based on um, I have a master's in teaching and museum education, which is very interactive. So my trainings are very interactive. You know, people are talking, they're writing, they're working in pairs. So I knew I didn't want to have a book that was just words on a page. I wanted to create something that could be, um, that everyone could customize for themselves, kind of as their own personalized guidebook towards uh, wellness, so i I think that answers your question. Those are the things that uh moved me to do this and and, in short, realizing that at the same time there was this conversation bubbling up kind of in the zeitgeist in the nonprofit world, it was also so much a part of who I am and what I'd been talking about and thinking about for years
0: yeah i mean the 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 challenge of burnout of you know unhealthy cultures within organizations have, have have been there for years and then i think we're just amplified and um yeah i guess amplified by by the pandemic and all the changes and the you know multi- multiple stressors that were going on I, I say that in the past tense as as if it's over but uh that that have you know that yeah. have been happening um and so and and at the same time there's been so much conversation about that and you know the the many many um it, it's in in the news all the time around wellness and and um self-care and i feel like especially in the nonprofit sector there's there's a lot of skepticism about it um you know how do we have time for it um and and what, what are some of the approaches that you found possible to really integrate um into your routine or found particularly helpful?
1: You mean on a personal level? Just yeah, let's keeping just myself at the personal <laughs> level and then we can
0: move <laughs> move from there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um I have always been good at professional boundaries. Um, so <laughs> when I worked in organizations, for example, I left the office at five. 30-ish every day, which is pretty unusual in the DC area. Um, But I also, when I work, work very intensively. So I'm not somebody who spends half their day, you know, hanging out at the water cooler. When I work, I really have my head down to work. Um, On some level, there's a price to pay for that in organizations, you know, um, in terms of personal relationships or whatever. Not that any of my personal relationships were bad, but it's sort of the same thing as, Um, You know, when women don't go out and play golf on the golf course with the CEO, there's, um, you know, missed opportunities. But for me, it was worth it. Um, I was just telling someone the story that uh, when I used to work in this office, um, I liked to, before I left every day, clean off my desk, sort of put my papers in files and, you know, make my desk look neat because I didn't like coming into a messy office. And one of my colleagues said to me, you know, you really shouldn't do that because people aren't going to think you're busy. So I would purposely leave a mess. And then you have to sort of step back and say, what is wrong with us that this is the culture that we've created? Um, So back to your original question. Um, Yes, I have always been good at boundaries. I also observe um, the Jewish Sabbath, which is from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And I don't work then. So That has always been a boundary that's been really helpful for me um, to like, I I know there's going to be 24 hours when I don't work and people who work with me know that. I just had a client the other day who asked me to do something very last minute and I literally sent it to her at like 4.45 on Friday, something I was writing and then she was going to work on it over the weekend and she wrote back and said, oh, so were you available to work on this on the weekend or not until Monday? And I said, not until Monday. And I didn't need to give her a big speech about why. The answer was, not until Monday. So I think part of it is setting some clear boundaries and knowing that if I don't do that, my work is, is going to suffer. Um, I also <laughs> sort of do as I say, not as I do, or that whole, like the cobbler has no shoes. I was feeling pretty overwhelmed uh, about two weeks ago, a lot of professional and personal stuff going on. And then I said to myself, wait a minute, when's the last time I did my gratitude writing? When's the last time I sat down to work on a crocheting project? When's the last time I went for a walk in the middle of the day? And I realized that even after just one day of doing a couple of those things, not all of them that I did feel better. Um, Sometimes I worry that all of these practices become a big to-do list, right? And then they become a burden and a stressor. So I have to give myself permission to pick and choose. So I have figured out over the years things that center me, calm me, make me feel good, and help give me the mental clarity that I need to do my work. Um, And it's okay not to do all of them. Like, it's okay if I just go for a walk today. It's okay for me, and not everybody has this freedom, but it's okay for me to take a 30-minute work break and crochet because it really calms me and relaxes me and slows down my central nervous system. And if that means I work a little later in the evening, so be it. Um, so those are a few of the a few of the things that I do. And I also think, I, you know, I wonder if you find this too. At this point in my career it's different from what i was earlier in my career if i have a difficult conversation with a client or if someone critiques my work or just you know whatever does something that annoys me i'm able to to separate that from who i am you know what I'm saying? So I think there was a time where if, if I wrote a proposal for someone and then they sent it back to me and said, oh, I don't really like this. I don't really like that. Let's scratch this. Let's scratch that. I would get really bent out of shape about it. Um, not to them, but like, you know, the cartoon bubble over my head. <laughs> and, and now it's just, oh, well, that's my work. That's not me. Um, but that I think is some people maybe are naturally like that. But I think that comes with time. What
0: about you? what are
1: your do you have strategies around this?
0: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, one you mentioned was the the gratitude practice and a couple of years ago, I started using um a a daily planner that's i think I don't know the company's like best self or something and I've since adapted it and and just use a blank one to to uh, to do the same thing, but I do always find that my days are better if I start with that it takes about 10 minutes. Um, you know, one step is just taking a look at the schedule, what have you got on, setting your goals like what are the top three things you're gonna try to get done today but then also what are three things that you're grateful for. And in reading your book, I appreciated that you go to much you get much more in depth on your gratitude. sometimes I'm just like sunshine. A really good cup of coffee and good sleep, and that's all I write. I think
1: you just hit my top three, actually. Oh, <laughs> add chocolate, then we we there hit you four. go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it, it's been easier to integrate some of these things since I've been outside of organizations. But even when I was working inside organizations, and even early in my career, you know early you know, like the first fifteen years of my career when I was a single mom, I mean, one of the things I would do was I was a very early bike commuter because it it was a cheap form of transportation. Mm-hmm. It provided me with my exercise and it provided me with some a little bit of alone time and like a transition from work. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, luckily I've never had an accident since there was no bike infrastructure <laughs> at that time, right. uh, back in the 90s. I and, hope you and, were wearing a helmet at least. Oh, of course I was. Yes, I was <laughs> doing that. Um. But even then, you know, just just prioritizing. Uh, so for me, some form of exercise, um, some form of mindfulness, doing some meditation, even if it's just I take a, you know, after my shower, laying down for five minutes and just breathing, mm-hmm. um, and then with a little more flexibility of being able to manage my my own schedule. Um, I've just become much more mindful about, um, what different things, what energy level I need for different activity level, different activities, right. And trying to structure my, uh, trying to structure my time around that. Um, I think there's uh-huh. a little bit of an illusion that when you work for yourself, you have complete control, but you don't. No, it's working... like you have 10 bosses, right. right? Right. You're working with lots of people and their expectations and and all of that. But, but those are some of the things that, that work for me.
1: You know what you're reminding me of also, and I wonder if you found this to be true. Um, I don't like to talk about pandemic silver linings because the pandemic is tragic. But one change in my work life that I appreciate is um, I feel like maybe particularly in fundraising, um, it's become a little less performative. In other words, when you talked about energy, how much energy to devote to things, you were reminding me of this. Um, you know, I don't feel like I have to be on as much. Um, And I think the pandemic did that because everyone was at home on zoom and you would hear things, you know, like, Oh, sorry, my baby's crying. My cat just jumped on me. My, you know, there's a, someone at the door, my internet's not working well, you know, whatever the case may be. I think that, I think that people have given each other a little more grace and, um, don't feel like they have to put on quite as much of a show. But I I don't know, maybe that's just my experience.
0: No, I think that's definitely the case. It's just a, a little more acknowledgement that, um, as you said at the very beginning, that you wanted your personal life and your work life to align, that, that um, everybody has both and <laughs> that they aren't as quite an, as neat and separate as we might have tried to pretend before.
1: Yeah, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. It was an interview with Natasha Leone, who's a actress. And she was saying that as she gets older, she realizes we're all just a bunch of buffoons on the bus. You know, you get, you don't get as mad anymore when other people don't do things perfectly because we're all just a bunch of buffoons on the bus. We're all just trying to figure it out for goodness sake.
0: Absolutely. I, I uh, remember when I was um, managing younger staff and, and I think coming out of, the, the education system that has become more and more and more structured, and there's more and more supports, you know, scaffolding and rubrics and all these things, there was kind of an expectation of like, well, the work world should be like that too. And like, no, right. or, you know, or or what are the best practices? And, you know, sure, you want to learn those, you want to learn from others. And at the same time, Honestly, we're all making this up every day we get up and, and live. Let's <laughs> I mean, just get some stuff done. You know, that's that's what's <laughs> yeah. happening. It's, all, it's yeah. like constant improv, right? I mean, that's essentially what life is. Oh my gosh, that's
1: such a good quote. It's constant improv. It really is.
0: It really is. So one of the things you talked about um, that I'd love to go back to is the idea of passion exploitation.
1: Oof, I just heard this term for the first time. Um, I don't know, maybe a month ago or six weeks ago. And again, it feels like all these conversations are just in the zeitgeist right now. So I don't know, maybe I have good timing for the first time in my life, but it's this idea that, oh, you know, you're working for a nonprofit, so you shouldn't mind if you're not paid well. You're working for a nonprofit, so you shouldn't mind if you're you know, overworked, and you don't have enough staff people to do this job that you've been told to do, and the expectations are really unfair, and you haven't taken a day off in a month, you know, you ha- you're you getting to live your passion. So you shouldn't mind about these things. The broken chair,
0: is, the computer that doesn't work. 100%. And it
1: is so exploitative and manipulative and I think people are pushing back but I do as, as much as I as a Gen Xer have
0: issues with millennials
1: and, and younger I think they are the ones who are standing up and saying uh-uh that's this is not okay
0: yeah I I have to give it to my my daughter's generation and and my nieces and nephews generation millennials and and um Gen Z. Yeah. Gen Z of uh, yeah, we're not we're not gonna take this anymore. And right. I appreciate In the words
1: that. of quiet, was that quiet riot or twisted sister, we're not gonna take this anymore. Yeah. Um and there's just less patience for this stuff. Um and I I think that as people become more aware um of systemic inequities, particularly over the last couple of years. With the Black Lives Matter movement, even Me Too to a degree, there's also a recognition of how much of that nonsense is tied up in systemic inequities and, um, you know, people who have always had to fight these battles of, of we understand more about what exploitation is and the forms, the insidious sort of gaslighting forms that it can take.
0: Yeah, and I I'm I feel like I'm seeing that across many many helping professions um, that that there's so many pieces of those systemic inequities that are built into how all of those systems work mm-hmm. um, whether it's teachers or um, nurses, social workers, folks in the nonprofit sector. Uh, the expectation that uh, because you're helping people and because there's that um, kind of inherent, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Not validation, but uh, gratification. You should feel good or, about it, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, that you also then don't actually need to be paid. We only need <laughs> to pay the people whose life, whose work is Sucking the life out of them. Right. And I write like, about that's really backwards. Yes. I write about this in the
1: book too that yes, when you decide to work in nonprofits, I mean, there's an understanding you're going to make less money than some other people, but there's there should not be an implicit understanding that you can't pay your kids tuition. You can't go on a vacation. You can't buy a cute pair of shoes or get a massage. You should be able to. You certainly should be able to do the basics, and you should be able to do a little more than the basics, particularly if you've been in this in your career path for a while. I think where people get a little annoyed, maybe with some younger generations, is when they ex- when they expect this stuff without putting in the time. Um, I once read uh, something about sort of millennials versus Gen X, which is me and maybe you, that um, there is this assumption around like more vacation time, job titles, you know, things like that, the Gen Xers in this study had more expectation around having to earn that over, you know, through work result time, whatever the case may be, whereas millennials maybe came in with more of that expectation. Um, but in any event, you shouldn't have to give up a good life to work for a good cause, Right. And I also, something else I write about in the book is that I think that donors should care about this because if donors are supporting a nonprofit and that nonprofit is churning through workers, the workers are overwhelmed, stressed out, quitting, quiet quitting. Um, Another term I heard recently was, I think it was a minimum effort Monday or something like that. You know, if this is what's going on at the nonprofits you're supporting, you should be concerned about that. And I think as organizations, I think organizations can't really say that they're being the most responsible stewards of donors' funds if they're not taking care of their staff, because by taking care of the staff, they are maximizing those donations.
0: Yeah, it really goes to that overhead myth of, you know, Mm -hmm. um, an organization is more effective if, Almost all of its funds are going directly into program, not recognizing what it actually takes to create the and and support those programs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen that turnaround somewhat in among foundations over the last decade or so. I don't know that that turnaround. I don't know if it's happening among individuals. I was having a conversation with a foundation officer uh, just. I think it was yesterday. Um, and they were telling me about uh, an organization. I don't know anything about them. I'm not endorsing them. I've never spoken to them, but it's I think it's called Fund the People, and it's about spreading this message of making sure you're investing in the staff because the staff are the ones who are making it happen.
0: Yeah, and so we talked about our our kind of individual approaches to um, self care and and prioritizing that. But as you mentioned at the beginning, it's not just the, the job of the individual, even though in our U.S. individualistic culture, we often um, have the solutions trickle down to the poor individual to take care of it all. But um, yeah. I, I've heard it framed as organizations need to, there's personal boundaries that you need to set, but then organizations need to set uh, what this person, I'll find their their name, called uh, guardrails that mm. that support those personal boundaries so that It is the norm that you're not working over the weekend, or that, you know, there's not an expectation that you're answering emails after hours, or, you know, those kinds of things, or that, you know, the organization is investing in people's skill building, professional development, um, taking time together to do learning and and reflection. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, to be honest with you, I haven't seen a lot of nonprofits that do that well. I'd love to hear about more of them that do that well. One thing I think I say in the book is, you know, it's not just Friday yoga. Like it's not enough to just slap Friday yoga into the schedule and say, well, we're done with wellness. Not that Friday yoga isn't great. I love Friday yoga and I'm just picking on Friday yoga at the moment. But the idea is it has to be more part of the culture. I think that um, the leadership, the C-suite, however your organization is, organized has to lead the way on that, as does the board. Um, so the C-suite has to be committed to not working on the weekends also. Um, and that's not easy for a lot of people at that level. And sometimes it's not realistic. It's sort of a chicken of the egg. Like, I don't have enough people on staff to not work on the weekends, but I want to not work on the weekends so my staff doesn't feel like they have to do that. So I understand that it's easier said than done. Um, one thing I also talk about in the book is, and I guess it's related to the passion exploitation piece too, um, when you're working at a nonprofit, sometimes you can feel pretty far removed from the actual work, um, depending on what your job is. Um, and you need to stay connected to the cause, the work, the clients, the people. Um, so, for example, when I worked at the Holocaust Museum, people, uh, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum here in D.C., um, people used to say to me, oh gosh, isn't it a hard place to work? It must be so hard. And I would say, you know, it's an office. We talk about recipes and share about our weekends. You know, I'm not, my desk is not in the middle of the permanent exhibition. Um, and, and so we worked in a separate office building than the museum and sometimes it did feel disconnected. So I started volunteering as a tour guide at the museum. There are certain groups like school groups and and police groups that would get tours. And it. I didn't have to take time. I didn't have to make up the time with my job. I did it. I want to say I gave tours maybe twice a month or something, but it was during my work day and there was no problem with that. I think that was kind of a good example. So, um, for example, I think if, if let's say a nonprofit is some sort of environmental group. I don't think it's enough for the executive director to say to staff, oh, yeah, you should make the time like once a month to go and see this watershed that we're working on. It's really inspiring. No, the director and the COO or whatever should be doing that on the regular. They should be making time in the regular workday for the staff to go do that. They should be facilitating it. It should be a normative part of the culture.
0: And I mean, there's so many benefits of that. It's not only, you know, if you do it together, um, it's not only reconnecting or, you know, connecting people really directly to the mission, but, you know, it can also serve as as team building. It, you know, it gets people interacting in a different way, you know, maybe bringing some cross-functional groups together to do something like that. But I think that modeling is so important. So, I mean, I think the Friday Friday yoga or Wednesday Lunch yoga is a great place to start. Yeah. Um, as long as when uh, you know there was one organization where I was working where they did have that and they um, collaborated with a couple different organizations in the same building to sponsor it. So staff from all sorts of different groups are coming down and and doing it. But every once in a while you you'd come back and you know you'd have to go to the. To the bathroom to change out of your yoga clothes, and there right. the, the 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 senior leader would kind of look at you like, where have you been? And I'm like, okay, that's not helpful. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about
1: how you don't want your colleagues to see you in yoga pants, which I also completely well, understand. Well, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> not you particular, I mean anybody. You know, right? I thought, like. Ooh. Jim's yeah. in the office. I don't want anyone to see me showering, you know, after I go to the gym with colleagues. And you remind me of another point that makes this, um, I think I hate to say it makes it tricky because I don't want to make it sound harder than it is, but it's something to keep in mind. You know, for some people, the last thing they want to do is yoga with a colleague. The last thing they want to do is participate in a brown bag lunch. Lunch is their sacred time. They want to eat quietly at their desk and read their book, and that's okay. So um there has to be some flexibility um and understanding that what fills up one person drains another person. And and it either it needs to be okay for people to participate, not participate, or participate in a way that makes sense for them and that feels good for them.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and but as as you said, it's also important to um I think that the uh, the place where people get frustrated when they see these you know top 10 lists of the things to do for self-care and, and you know the eye roll start is one
1: more thing to do.
0: One more thing to do or or the creating the impression that that, that this is easy and it isn't. but um, I, I think the uh, the investment and the intention around it um, can really pay off in a lot of really important ways uh, yeah. for the overall effectiveness and mission of the organization.
1: Yeah, I mean, my hope is with the book and just in general that even if it it doesn't feel easy to, to figure out how to start doing these things or to get in the habit of making time for it, it can still be done with ease, you know, that it doesn't feel like a burden and something else you have to do. It doesn't feel like a struggle. And if what you're doing to feel well, if it doesn't feel like you can do it with ease, I would suggest that maybe you could find something else.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important one because it's not something that's that is much valued in our culture. I feel like the okay. first time I've even interacted with the notion of having ease in 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 anything was was <laughs> in doing, and I'm not like people will not look at me and say, "Oh, I'll, I'll bet she does yoga." No, you know, yoga or or meditation, where that sense of um, you know, gr- you know, just giving yourself grace and 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 not pushing, not the you know Jane Fonda approach to yeah. <laughs> exercise. Yeah, but
1: approaching
0: yeah. things with ease.
1: Yeah, yeah, ease. What's that? I mean, we're not we're not conditioned to believe that that's okay. And also, it gets back to nonprofit culture. You know, I think there's this notion of it's it's kind of like the passion exploitation conversation. Like, it shouldn't be easy. I mean, you're working on really difficult things. I'm not saying that you don't work hard at whatever you're doing but can you find a sense of ease in what you're doing whether it's you know a wellness practice or just work in general like it it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't have to be torturous and we shouldn't have a culture where we're saying if you're not running yourself into the ground you're not doing it right if your desk doesn't look messy you're not doing it right we that's the culture we need to change
0: we'll be back After this quick break, Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. You can download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. And we're back. Well, at the end of each episode, I, I uh, like to uh, play a game where I ask one uh, random icebreaker question from a box of icebreaker questions that I have. So you um, literally have a box right I there. I literally have a box. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. So, what important truth uh, do very people, uh, very few people, agree with you on? What What would be an important truth that few people agree with you on?
1: Um. Orange juice is gross. I don't like the pulp. <laughs> Nobody agrees with me on that. Oh, I know it's very un-American. i um, not like orange juice, but what can I tell you? I don't. What is something more important or valuable that other people don't agree with me on? Um, oh, my gosh. It's hard for me to think of something because I unfortunately surround myself with a lot of people who tend to agree with my general outlook on life. Um, You know what? I love crappy TV. I love reality TV. I love watching The Real Housewives and seeing those dingbats argue with each other about stupid stuff makes me feel better about my problems and I think some people say oh it just rot your brain it's the worst you should throw your tv out the window god I, I just I love it I really do <laughs> I love it and that is okay and I should not have to feel ashamed about that and I it's also I can love the real housewives and all that other junk And I can still read like really great books and go to museums and do beautiful things. In fact, my daughter and I are binging this new show. It's not new, new to us right now called Married at First Sight. And like on some level, after I watch it, I feel like I have to take a shower. Like it's unbelievable that we're watching this show, but there is something about just looking at it and, and it prompts conversations between me and my daughter. And so much of it is silly and cringy. And if that, you know, releases me to my, from my day-to-day worries, then so be it.
0: Yeah. Gives you a, gives you a little sense of ease, I would say. Yeah. And and that (laughs) idea that, I mean, especially in DC, we can take ourselves way too seriously. So the the, the idea that, that, uh, you know, highbrow and lowbrow culture can, can coexist in one person. I love that.
1: Oh, I love me some lowbrow. Love it. So what's coming up in your work? What's, what's emerging? Good stuff, actually. I've been asked to do a bunch of trainings um, virtually with some virtually, some in person. But, you know, the pandemic really opened a lot of virtual opportunities for me. So that's good. And um, talking about the book, you know, doing some interviews around that. And, um, you know, just lots of writing, which I love. I love doing the writing, whether it's grant writing or um, case statement writing or just, you know, general organizational writing needs i love all of that so that's the latest really
0: well thank you so much thank you for coming on the podcast
1: thank you i've loved our conversation i'm so grateful that you invited me and included me among all your great guests so thanks so much
0: i appreciated lauren's point around self-care and wellness not just being the responsibility of the individual staff person or volunteer it is on the organization and the organization's leadership to create a culture that values wellness. And this can certainly be a challenge because it is often leaders who are modeling overwork and always being on. And even if they are setting up policies to support wellness and are saying to staff, take care of yourselves. If leadership does not do it for themselves, then this is really all for naught. We explore this dynamic from multiple angles in my two-part episode series on creating healthy organizational cultures, which is episodes uh, 62 and 63. I also appreciated Lauren's explanation of the concept of passion exploitation, that basically we should feel lucky to work in the sector where we get to work towards our passion, where, as Lauren described, her values in her personal life and work life align. And that because of that, we should be willing to put up with low pay, poor working conditions, unreasonable expectations, that broken office chair, or those hand-me-down computers that you're having to put up with. And thinking about this dynamic and the fact that 75% of nonprofit workers are women, I feel like there are so many assumptions built into the sector that start with its origins. Many helping professions started with the wives of middle-class and wealthy men who wanted to contribute outside their home, yet did not need to be comparably compensated for their labor since their material needs were already taken care of. And certainly this was never fully the case, as Dr. Orletta Caldwell pointed out in our last episode, episode 71. But I do believe it informs the structures and assumptions that got built in to the beginnings that we are still living with today. Another precursor could be the vow of poverty, many in religious orders that serve the poor, made as part of their religious life. The cultural assumption that money is somehow immoral, and to do good you cannot include money, colors our current struggles around paying people living wages and more in the sector. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Lauren, her full bio, the full tri- transcript of our conversation, as well as any links or resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as Cindy Rivera Grazer of 100 Ninjas for her production support. We wanna hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.